You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. Mic check, mic check, here we go. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode. First off, huge shout out to all of you for tuning in and continuing to tune in to not only the the network, but the uh, Nine Finger Chronicles and the Hunting Gear Podcast, man, really appreciate that. If you have time, please go leave a five-star review on uh, iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Go check out some of the other uh, other podcasts on the network, like the Western Rookie, the uh, Whitetail Landscapes Habitat Management podcast that's out. Uh, there's so much good information coming out of all of these uh, podcasts that uh, I'm sure you guys will enjoy. So if you haven't already, go uh, go spread the spread the analytics per se, and go check out some of these other podcasts as well, and continue uh, to support the Nine Finger Chronicles and the Hunting Gear Podcast. Man, I really appreciate that. Uh, Really good episode today. But before I talk about that, I'm going to do an unfiltered episode. I don't know if it's going to be this Friday when I'm going to launch it, or next week sometime. But so last week, I went out and I went on a mini mini shed hunt slash trail camera retrieval scouting mission and I found some really good sign and it helped me kind of lay out I, I went to hunt stand and I um documented all of these things that I found on hunt stand and basically put some pieces of the puzzle together on this farm that I don't hunt a lot but it's closer to my house so I you know I put a little time and energy into it with that said I I was hunting there the last part of October and the first part first couple of days of November before I went I, I switched to the main farm my main farm where I eventually shot uh, my buck 
Anyway, two ridges, it was one ridge over about 200 yards away. There's no sign on this little ridge, no sign, right? And the reason I put the trail camera on, uh, trail camera on there because there was this one lone bed on this ridge. And although there wasn't a lot of activity on that specific bed, I put this trail camera up in November, uh, no, excuse me, July, just to kind of see what in this little open, open spot. And I just wanted to see what was cruising this ridge. As the season went on, um, I, I popped in there one more time just to scout for any sign, no sign. All the rubs were way down below or way uh, or on the other ridges to the right and to the left uh, or to the, it would be the north or the south. And then on the field edge where was where all the sign was. Now, this trail camera, I just kind of forgot about it. Right. I hunted to I hunted on a ridge to the south a couple times. I hunted on the ridge to the north and even uh, 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 another ridge to the east. And I didn't put a lot of attention into that particular draw because there wasn't a lot of sign or on that ridge because there wasn't a lot of sign. But I was, I was hunting over a really big rub line and some fresh scrapes down lower in the, I guess, the drainage below that. And so uh, the reason I'm talking about this is because I didn't see any type of shooter deer. I didn't have any other deer on trail camera other than... Um, what I had from the summer and typically there's a transition and some of the bigger, more mature bucks leave. Now, all the sign was around this ridge. And so I'm sitting there, didn't see anything sitting there, make, make my sits, do my rotation, you know, play the wind, do all that stuff. Nothing. I, uh, two days ago, three days ago, I go to, or last week, excuse me, I go to pull the card. I pull the trail camera down and get home. And what do you know? There is a absolute giant on multiple occasions on this ridge while I'm hunting on the ridge to the south or the ridge to the north and working his way through this area as I am, uh, you know, working his way through this area while I'm in the tree. And I never saw him. I you know, whether he came in, uh, but, but my trail cameras were showing daylight images of this buck. I'm guessing uh, a five-year-old 170 plus split brow time, or excuse me, split uh, G G2s and just a stud, heavy, old, mature buck, you know, a buck that would just be like a, the highlight of my bow hunting career. And he wasn't laying any sign or he, when he did lay sign, he was on different ridges. So here's what I got to figure out. For this next year, I'm going to put trail cameras out. I'm going to put some mineral stations closer, close to where I park my truck. And I'm going to try to figure this deer out. I did get a couple of trail camera pictures of this buck while I was in the, uh, while I, uh, let's see, nocturnal pics of this deer. And one actually in the middle of the day. So two, two series of the same buck on a trail uh, cell cam that I had kind of on this field edge close to where I parked my truck just so I could see this gap in this fence and what deer were moving through. And so two series, and then you add that in with all of the pictures that I had of this buck throughout the actual season. And now I'm starting to get a pattern of where this deer is moving. And so I have to try to figure out where this deer is moving, how he's moving, and that's uh, and hopefully if he does survive, he did survive. I think the last the last picture I have with 
of him is early December. And so now here's what I'm going to be doing. I'm, I'm going to be obsessed with this. This is how I operate. I'm thinking about this deer all the time. Um, you know, come summer months, it's time to put out some mineral. I'm going to try to get a picture of him. That's going to identify where he, you know, if he's alive or not. And then from there, I know that, Hey, I'm going to put, uh, a lot of attention on this. I'm not joking, like nine acre triangle, uh, that I've laid out. And in this nine acre triangle, I'm going to try to one, two, three, f- four. I, I'm thinking four tree stands in this nine acres, and they're almost going to be straight in the line, uh, north south. And I'm going to be able to play a north wind, um, and, and each wind is going to have a north south uh, implication, right? So that's that's what I'm thinking about right now. That's what I'm going to talk about probably in another episode. So um, yeah, that's that's what uh, what I'm thinking about. So. And that's how you, and that's how you, that's how you win, right? That's how you play the game. You, you, you start to think, you start to strategize, you put all the pieces of the puzzle together. You know, you look at a map, you kind of, you put boots on the ground, you sit and you observe, and then you make adjustments, right? And so that's, that's the goal for this particular deer if he survived the shotgun season. So I'm probably going to put uh, a couple more cameras out in a couple weeks and uh you know once the tur or maybe after april once the turkey seasons are over and get in there and and put you know start putting the pieces of the puzzle together again so 365 but today we have a really good episode we're going to be talking with the founder uh one of the founders one of the early adopters of qdma brian murphy and he worked for, I believe he, he mentions over 20 years, he worked for the QD, QDMA, all the way from when it was just him to now this, uh, you know, to two years ago is when I, th- I believe he retired from the uh, QDMA or, or decided to part ways with the QDMA, which is now the National Deer Association. He he talks about the struggles of getting the conser- uh, th- this conservation organization off the ground, the, the obstacles he faced you know, when trying to get people to adopt this methodology and this way of thinking, and then uh, how it slowly started to gain traction, and all of a sudden it became, oh, this sucks, to, oh my God, this is awesome. And then he also talks a little bit about, and I, if, you, if you remember, I went on a rant a while ago about how... Um, personalities, influencers, companies, I didn't feel like they were doing enough to support conservation efforts. And he talks about that struggle, right? About how people wanted to get paid to show up or participate in some of these events or or companies were only interested in working with them if they had access to their uh, to their email lists or to all of their membership and things like that. So it, it, it's kind of conservation this conservation organization kind of and the people that they work with kind of turned to yes man support this is awesome to what can you do for me instead of what they and their platforms can do for the conservation organization and it's just kind of a you know I, i feel that's the wrong way to look at it so he does a really good job of explaining all that he talks about the you know the the storyline of the QDMA and when he left and how that trans, uh, transitioned into the National Deer Association. And now he's on the other side of the aisle and he's working as, uh, uh, he works with Hunt Stand and he's kind of their director of conservation, um, uh, corporate partnerships, director of cor- corporate, VP of corporate partnerships, I think is the official title. And he talks about how 
Hunt Stand is working diligently with Delta Waterfowl, National Wild Turkey Federation, um, the uh, National Deer Association, and some other uh, conservation organizations to use their platform to spread the message, donate money, and, and just have a big footprint in the conservation space from a for-profit company so that's real and that's why i love working with certain companies is when they've made the decision hey guess what uh we're gonna make money but we're also gonna give back and there's nothing wrong with that right but it's because that's way better than making money in this space and not giving back so these guys are putting they're they're talking the talk and walking the walk and that's why i like uh using hunt stand and uh, Brian now kind of talks a little bit about what he does for Hunt Stand and what his role is and the, the, uh, the, the mission, I should say, uh, with conservation and Hunt Stand. So really awesome episode. Uh, I know you guys are going to enjoy it. So uh, please listen to every word that he says because uh, it's, it's good, man. It's a really good episode. So again, once again, I'm not prepared for this, but I'm going to do a quick, I'm going to do a couple commercials here. So I talked with the owner of Novex and in the next couple, uh, I'm not going to say couple months, I'm going to say like six year, like this six months to 18 months time frame, they plan on launching all like new products that are going to really change the game. And so a lot of the time people say, oh, these products are going to change the game and they don't necessarily mean it, but just listening to him in this conversation made it sound like like I'm gonna it's gonna happen these products that we're gonna be bringing to the table and uh, some of the stuff that we're gonna be taught you know like introducing into the the tree stand space and then some other spaces as well um, it's gonna be pretty cool so keep an eye out on Novex outdoors and uh, check out some of the products that they're gonna be launching I'm sure there's gonna be more information to come in about the six months when because I, I really want him to come on and talk about it but he's like, man, I don't have anything really to talk about. I know, you know, once we can start actually talking about the products, then it's a good time to come on. But, uh, but, and I agree with him. So NovexOutdoors.com, check out their current lineup of tree stands that they have to, and uh, climbing sticks, man. Awesome. Made in America. Awesome functionality. Awesome company. Novex Outdoors. And then uh, Vortex Optics. Vortex, man, good people. I'll be heading up to their uh, their headquarters in Wisconsin on the seventh and eighth of October, and then we're gonna just I'm just gonna do a huge podcast push where I'm gonna be talking about uh, you know I'm talking with some of the people within their company. These guys are participants. I've I've talked about this in the past. These guys are participants in the products. Some companies they make a product, but they're not per- participants. Right? They're just like, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, I got this product, but I don't hunt or fish or I'm not serious about it. The people who work at Vortex are serious about their firearms. They're serious about the outdoors, hunting, and uh, whether that's with a gun or with a bow and their optics and how that all intertwines. When you have people like that work for your company, um, there's a realness to to what they're telling you and there's a perspective there that they have that some of the other you know some some other companies may not have so huge shout out to uh, vortex for you know partnering 
you know, the reason I partner with them is because they believe in me and what I'm doing and, and I believe in what they're doing. And that just makes the perfect handshake, right? So, uh, Vortex Optics, go check out their binos, their, uh, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, red dots, range finders, all that stuff. Awesome company, awesome products, awesome people. So that's Vortex Exodus outdoor gear. Uh, you need to go check out their, their, their trail cameras. And why do I like their trail cameras? And I'll tell you why I like their trail cameras, because I'm confident that when I go set them up properly, put them in the woods, I walk away and they're taking pictures. That's how I got all this information on the buck that I just mentioned, right? Is because I had a trail camera that's been out there for eight months. And I think it's a July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March for nine months. And it functioned flawlessly. And so that that's confidence, right? And that information that I got from that trail camera could potentially help me get within shooting range of this buck this upcoming year. So guess what? If I have if if I can pull that off, that is a direct connection to that trail camera and that company and it functioning like it should and me using that data that I gathered from that and putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So exodusoutdoorgear.com, check out the render. That's their cell cam. They have a solar panel that can connect to the cameras that just increases the battery life and the longevity, and you can stick it out there, and it's always going to take pictures. And then on top of that, uh, the lift and the, the lift... Oh no, the track, lift in the track. Yeah, so check out their um, exodusoutdoorgear.com. And last, Excalibur Crossbows. Go and check out excalibercrossbow.com. The best part about uh, Excalibur is that they are a cornerstone of the hunting uh, industry. When it comes to crossbows, they've been around for a very long time. And you, you don't stick around for a very long time if you are bad at what you do or you offer shitty products. These guys are around because their products worked. They care about their customers. And uh, and when those things happen and you have a product that actually works and functions like it's supposed to, you have return customers, thus increasing your business, growing your business, and people continue to you know, people continue to support you and you support them. And that's the that's how all this comes full circle. So if you're looking for a crossbow, a high quality crossbow, go check out Exodus Outdoor, or excuse me, Exodus, ExcaliburCrossbow.com and take a look at all of the uh, products that these guys uh, offer. So huge shout out to the partners, huge shout out to all of you. Thanks for taking time to listen to the advertising. That's how I get paid. That's how I can put out all of this free content. Thank you very much. And uh, I say we just get into today's episode with Brian Murphy. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone today, Mr. Brian Murphy. Brian, how we doing, man? Man, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. So, um, uh, kind of a a little. But actually, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, why don't I take a, a step back here? Um, I wanted to get right into it, but I want to take a step back and let me just ask you: How was your 2021 hunting season? It's absolutely fantastic uh, on, on many fronts. Um, I actually uh, spent most of that time hunting with my, my oldest daughter, a super avid whitetail hunter. She's uh, just turned 22 and has been hunting avidly uh, and, and harvesting deer herself since the age of eight. And 
she she took two fantastic deer this year but but more than the the size of the deer she took just the memories we got in the stand together i mean yeah. i'm so blessed to have a 20 something year old young daughter in college that really loves to hunt and loves to spend time with her old man so uh that 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 alone makes it a successful season um I uh, was fortunate enough also to take a very nice deer in Western Kentucky on a place I've hunted a long time with a bow, my, uh, my best bow kill to date, uh, on a place that I truly love. I consider it my second hunting home. Uh, I've hunted there a decade and haven't shot a, uh, a buck until this year, uh, past dozens and dozens. And I was looking for that one that I would be truly pleased to, to take. And uh, he came along and I was fortunate enough to, to make a good shot and, and uh, be able to bring him back to Georgia with me. So, uh, you know, great season. Just got back from a predator hunt. Uh, turkeys had a great turkey season. So now it's been a been a great year. So let me ask you this, and I don't want to focus on the age so much, but how old are you? I am fifty four. Fifty four. Okay, fifty four years old. And at fifty four, you said you harvested your best archery buck. What's that like? And I, I take it you've been hunting for a very long time. Uh, what's that like? Hitting a a uh, a, I guess a, a mark or like a, a check mark or a pinnacle of your career at this point. You know, it's it's uh, it, it's it's certainly gratifying. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to uh, to have access through my career with QDMA and as a deer biologist to be on a lot of wonderful properties over the years. But most of my career, particularly many years with QDMA, I was really the host on many of these hunts. I didn't actually hunt myself uh not not for bucks uh so to, to many people's surprise you know i haven't you know i'm not the guy that's taken you know five 200 inch whitetails and you know that's not never how i've made my career I'm, I'm a southern guy and i've hunted mostly in the southern united states in fact most of my hunting i prefer to do close to home on ground that i know that i've uh, i've invested my sweat equity uh over a long period of time on a piece of dirt 25 years um and you know, we've got some good deer, you know, certainly for the South, but, you know, it's not going to rival what, what you can take in the Midwest. Um, so I get the most satisfaction of taking a mature buck on a property that I have some vested interest in. And this Kentucky property, I've hunted for a decade and I, I know it well. I've guided many first time hunters on their first deer on that property. And that's probably my, my greatest success there. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was certainly rewarding. And, you know, hopefully that's not the last one I take. Um, I was probably equally proud that uh, it marked my 24th consecutive bow season with at least, at least one whitetail with a bow. Oh, nice. And so, um, you know, that, that, that means a lot to me. I, I enjoy stick and string and uh, enjoy whitetails in the cat and mouse game. You have to play with a, with a bow in hand. Yeah. Uh, this is my very first, I'm 41 and this is the very first year I've ever harvested two bucks uh, ever. And one was in <laughs> South Dakota and one was in uh, here in Iowa and I don't know the, the one I'm looking at the Euro mount, it's, I'm staring right at it, right across the, my office and it's not big by any means, but the memories that came along with that, it's, I don't know why, but I think about that little fence row that I was in all the time. Uh, no doubt. I mean, I can look back across, you know, many of the deer that I've got, you know, on my wall or in, in my hunting room or wherever. And, you know, it's not always the biggest one and often it's not. I mean, I've got, I was fortunate enough to take a, a nice four and a half year old deer in Alabama many years ago with a guy named Jim Crumley, who was the founder of modern day camouflage. One of the true great guys of the hunting industry. He started the tree bark camo pattern. If any are old enough to remember that, um, you know, so I've got some special memories that I've, you know, been fortunate enough to take uh, deer with some pretty special people. 
and that's what I remember as much often as, as anything is just the, the memory of the camp and the, and the experience and what that deer did or didn't do, you know, the excitement of that individual hunt. That means more to me than, than the size of the antlers nine times out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, with you, uh, yourself and hunting with your daughter, you had one heck of a year, man. Yeah. Very blessed. Yeah. All right. So now let's change gears a little bit. Um, how long have you been retired now from the QDMA? Uh, retired in March of 20. So, uh, just on two years. Now. Okay. And how long did you work for QDMA? Uh, 23 years, 23 years. Okay. So 23 years working in a conservation organization. Um, I'm just going to ask a couple really high level questions. What was that like? What was it like working for a conservation organization like the QDMA for 23 years? Well, I have to admit it's, it was a, a, a boy, boyhood dream of mine, not necessarily QDMA per se, because I didn't even know what that was and it didn't exist when I was 12 years old when I made a decision. Not many people are as blessed as, as I've been to make a decision at age 12 that I was going to be a deer biologist and dedicate my life to white-tailed deer. Um, in fact, much to my parents' surprise, they even asked me, is that a real job and does it pay money? Um, <laughs> I, uh, I spent the next 40 some odd years trying to answer those questions. But so for someone, you know, who was vested in the quality deer management movement, uh, I was fortunate enough to do my undergraduate in wildlife management at Texas Tech University back in the 80s, right when quality deer management was coming into vogue in Texas. That's where it started in the 70s. And so I was indoctrinated at a, at a young age, an impressionable young age as a biologist. And uh, that got my foot in the door to, to come to the University of Georgia to do my graduate research on whitetails. And when I was there, I met a gentleman uh, from South Carolina named Joe Hamilton, who had just started a, a small fledgling little group in South Carolina called the South Carolina Quality Deer Management Association, which he had borrowed the concept from Texas. And uh, it was starting to show some promise in the Southeast. And I just happened to be a Texan transplanted to the Southeast. So I was an easy sell. Uh, I was already there, if you will. And uh, so I got involved with that little fledgling organization and uh, it started to grow. And uh, I formed the fourth ever chapter of QDMA as a graduate student uh, when I was there in Athens, Georgia. Uh, never, never intending to work for the organization. I was just believing in the, in the philosophy and joined as a Charter Life member, one of 37 Charter Life members of, of that organization when it did become a national group in 1991. And uh, then I disappeared for four years. I had a, a great opportunity to go 12,000 miles away and become the first ever deer biologist in Australia. Uh, so I spent four years managing deer for the Aussies. And uh, when I got back, uh, the organization approached me and said, you know, we think you'd be a, a great fit as our, uh, our first executive director. And uh, and it sounds great and a big title, but I can tell you it was, I was a staff of one. Um, <laughs> everything that the organization, and I use air quotes around organization at the time, it was a concept. It was a yeah. philosophy. It really wasn't an organization. Uh, everything that, that that organization had amassed in its first nine years, and this was 1997, fit in the back of our founders, El Camino, if anybody knows what that is. Yep. Uh, and delivered it to my my rental house in Georgia with uh, the entire assets, uh, financial assets of the organization, which totaled one hundred forty two dollars um, and uh, handed it to me and said, we're behind you all the way. Go get them, Tiger. Uh, <laughs> so so um, I could say I was there at the startup, yeah. uh, to say the least. 
So started as a staff of one and uh, we just started to build it brick by brick. Uh, we eventually moved out of my house into a little rental building in my, my little town here and eventually uh, got enough mass and momentum that we could hire a few people and uh, build a proper headquarters. And we started a movement. And uh, so to be, to be part of that uh, as a deer fanatic that I am and someone who's dedicated their, their life to deer and deer hunting and conservation. I mean, you talk about a dream come true to lead an organization that, in my opinion, and I am biased, made the most significant fundamental change in how we think about managing and hunting deer, you know, of the last century. So, yeah. so yeah, uh, absolutely just a phenomenal ride and uh, yeah. enjoyed it tremendously. When, uh, whenever there's a new movement like that, you know, it's your job to try to explain to the masses why this is important. What were some of those initial reactions from people when you said, okay, hey, we got to start doing this quality deer management stuff. Like the average Joe looks at you and is like, what was their reaction? Well, you know, again, if, if, uh, if you're, you know, got a, a few whiskers like I do and some gray hair or lack of hair, you know, you do remember the days when we had, we went from a period in the seventies and much of the U S where we had almost no deer in much of the country to a yeah. period very quickly, you know, within 15, 20 years where we had deer under every bush and our, you know, and we had a philosophy back in the seventies post restocking when we moved deer around the country, we, you know, we had this philosophy that you never shoot a doe. Uh, and that was the right philosophy at the time while we were trying to build those herds up to huntable populations. But then we waited too long to start changing the, the prescription, if you will, to tell hunters that no, doe harvest is part of deer management now. Uh, and that was a hard culture to change. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I was berated, yelled at, uh, cussed at, um, almost to the point of fights um, about, you know, what you want me to shoot a doe and pass a legal buck? Uh, what in the world, you know, are you smoking? Yeah. Uh, just, 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 you know, uh, you know, unbelievable stuff. So it was a tough sell, uh, particularly early on to a lot of hunters because it, it required a fundamental shift in the way they hunted and thought about managing deer. Well, management wasn't even really part of the philosophy. It was just a straight hunting philosophy. And so it was a, it was a tough sell. And, and, uh, you know, much to, to many hunters surprise, the agencies weren't quick to move either. And so the Quality Deer Management Association in its early days was not welcomed by state agencies. Huh. Uh, we were considered uh, we were considered kind of the rabble rousers uh, that somehow we were going to teach hunters and landowners how to make decisions for themselves. And, and that was always the uh, the sort of sole authority of a state agency. This is what we do. We, we tell hunters and landowners what to do. And, and all of a sudden, here comes an upstart nonprofit that's going to tell hunters and landowners how they can do it on their own hundred acres. And I think that's what empowered so many hunters to get involved is because agencies can't and don't manage at the 100 acre, 200, 500 acre scale. They manage at large state DMUs, yeah. counties, you know, so all of a sudden we empowered hunters to make their own decisions on their own 40 acres. And all of a sudden they started to see it work. Yeah. And uh, it didn't happen overnight. This, you know, we're talking about, a you know, largely a two decade uh, run to get to where we are today, where it's just now mainstream, it's just considered normal. If you're a young hunter, you probably don't even know a day when you didn't harvest does and pass year and a half old bucks. And it's just kind of what you do now, but that was not how it was. And it yeah. took a heavy lift to get us there. Yeah. Lots of, uh, lots of pushback. It sounds like. Oh yeah. No, it was, uh, it was quite the struggle. Uh, and what's, what's so gratifying is that now, 
you know, many of those state agencies, well, in fact, there's a, a large group, you're probably familiar with this annual meeting called the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting. Yep. Uh, the largest gathering of deer biologists in the nation, about 400 get together every year and share research. And uh, I can remember the first year that um, QDMA attended as an organization, myself and our founder, both biologists, um, should be welcome in this fraternity. Uh, we were told in no uncertain circumstances that we weren't welcome at that meeting by the host state. Um, it's, which is, you know, which was, uh, you know, pretty telling to us of yeah. kind of where we really stood, but what was so gratifying is that less than a decade later, that same body of professionals changed their rules so that they could give a lifetime achievement award to an organization, not an individual. And they gave it to the quality deer management association a decade after us almost not being welcome in their fold. So yeah. it was, we stayed the course, we stayed true to science. We never played dirty politics and went around the agencies. We worked with them. Uh, sometimes we pushed them. Uh, sometimes we got in, their, in, you know, got in their crawl a little bit, but we stayed true to what the hunters in mass wanted. And this was an upswell of hunters that caused this change, not agency. This was yeah. not a top down movement. This was a bottom up movement. Yeah. So that was what made it so cool. Yeah. So when, you know, what was that point like when it became like, grind 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 opposition 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 to you know what this is gonna work like we we're getting momentum and we're people are starting to see our vision what was that like uh i, I tell you it was super exciting i mean it, you know i almost felt like an entrepreneur in those days that is my is my little startup gonna actually make it and i actually begged beg forgiveness for my wife when I took over the job at QDMA. I said, can you give me three years to try to make this thing work? Because it was, it was very risky. It was, there's no guarantee that this organization or this movement behind it was going to succeed. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to have the blessing of my wife because, you know, the organization had no money. I mean, I had to earn my own salary, no benefits, no nothing. It was just, can you make it? And, you know, I was so vested in the organization and the movement again, coming from Texas, I understood the philosophy charter life member of the group, you know, and I'm Irish. Uh, I'm stubborn. Uh, I'm stubborn as they come. And, you know, failure was not an option if, if uh, it, you know, so it was, it was going to come easier. It was going to come kicking and screaming, but I got, it was going to come. And, uh, and, but once we hit, I think the, the, the telling point for me is when the organization went from a couple of thousand members of just this little grassroots concept to a 10,000 member organization, that was like, wow, I think, and it happened pretty fast. And then we went from 10 to 20 and then to 30,000. You know, when I saw the masses start to come on board and the energy of hunters across this country, and particularly the tipping point really for me, and I think for the movement, was when hunters in the upper Midwest, and I'm talking about in Northeast, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, core upper Midwest, Northeast strongholds, when they realized this could work there, uh, because when it first came out of Texas, everybody said, well, that's a Texas thing. Uh, then it was dumped into the South Carolina area of the low country, large plantations. Well, of course, it can work on five and 10,000 acre properties. But when, you know, a guy in Michigan, you know, with 40 acres started to see some results, that's when it became a mainstream movement. When it had the, the roots in every nook and cranny and, and uh, anybody that's ever done prescribed firework knows that you use a drip torch and you just start lots of little spot fires and they kind of all grow together. That's what finally started to happen. And when yeah. that happened, it was an exciting time because we knew then this was, you can't stop this now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a wildfire and it's growing. Yeah. So with any big movement, right, there comes a point where 
it it reaches this mass, this this peak, this pinnacle, and then the age kicks in, and you know there's a there's another generation that has to follow in the footsteps of the previous generation that has, like yourself, vested a lot of time and energy, blood, sweat, and tears into the movement. And maybe that other generation just isn't as fired up or cultures changed or technology, whatever happens. Did you guys ever have to go through that transition as well? Actually, I would, I would say that that actually was one of our biggest assets when, when a lot of the generation just beyond mine, the baby boomer generation, which was the one most indoctrinated in the old philosophy, the don't shoot does, shoot every legal buck that you can. When that trend, when that generation started to transition into the, uh, my generation, the generation X, and particularly that just below me, the younger ones, it was an easier sell. Uh, they got it. In fact, yeah. they were much easier to bring on board than, than their fathers and grandfathers and uncles. So it, once we saw that, it just added fuel to the fire and it accelerated even more. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to pivot here a little bit. And uh, a while ago I went on this rant um, and I, I not not only this rant was not only supported my by my opinions, but it was supported by listening to other conservation organizations talk about the lack of interest that people in the hunting industry. I feel like there's two separate things like there's the hunting community and then there's the hunting industry. And from me standing where I am and looking into social media, looking into the television shows, looking into some of the, the companies that um uh, that make their money off of this natural resource. I don't see a lot of giving back to conservation compared to where I feel it should be. So I go on this rant, right? My buddy, Tim Kent, a mutual friend of ours comes in and says, Hey, Dan, you need to get Brian Murphy on, on the show. He can talk about that. Not only from what he was doing at the, uh, uh, at the QDMA back in the day, but what he's doing now on the other side of things with hunt stand. So, I just want to kind of ask another high-level question here and talk about your experience dealing with the quote-unquote hunting celebrity, the, the influencers, and the hunting uh, companies that all kind of make their money off of this natural resource and, and what it's like trying to convince them to give their time and energy to uh, a conservation organization like QDMA. Well, that's a, that's a big, broad topic, yeah. but uh, it is one that's near and dear to my heart because I've lived it for almost three decades now. Yeah, and, and, and I can say there's been a fundamental shift, and I can't give you an exact date of when that is, but I would probably say sometime in the, in the, in the early to mid-2000s, I started to see a noticeable shift. And so when I started in the conservation arena with QDMA, there were a handful of companies then that were willing to support the, what I would call the white hat, not nonprofits, you know, the, the everyday acronyms that hunters know out there in the various critter groups. And there was a willingness to support them because they were doing good work yeah. uh, period. So you had the ability to go to a, a reputable big company and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm so-and-so with QDMA or DU or NWTF or whoever. And there was a much increased willingness just to give financial support and whatever they could to help grow this, this space. And I started to see a shift uh, sometime in the mid 2000s where it became less and less about, you know, your mission and more and more about how many members you have, how you can reach, how you can help them sell products. It was metric driven. Uh, it was less mission driven. Yeah. 
And, and that was the big shift where it was just, you know, we were viewed as, as conservation organizations largely, not exclusively, but largely as just another media provider or another, you know, just group of people out there. It wasn't as much that we were nonprofit or that we were spending every nickel we could on mission. It was more about, you know, what can you do for me? Yeah. And, and, and I get that to a point. I mean, these companies, you know, are under pressure to, to make money and sell product. And, and certainly I understand their position, but I always felt that they were falling short. And there are a few exceptions to that. And I'll you know point out Bass Pro and some of the others that have always given uh, because their founder, you know, it, a lot of it comes from the leadership and the ownership of the company and their vision. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so there, there, there were some that have always been there and then there's some that have come and gone in that space. Um, but, but we did see a shift and, and that made it very difficult and, and much more, you know, uh, metric driven sales pitches to these groups to get them on board. You know, it was about how you could get your product, uh, their product in your banquet, how many, you know, readers you had in, in the old print magazine days, uh, now in the social media realm, uh, that sort of thing. So did see a shift and, and I saw a concurrent shift at that same point with the, what you might call your, your, your influencers. Uh, your, your, you know, well-known hunters out there on TV and in various places, it was relatively easy to get those kind of folks to, to give you a little extra love or show up at your convention for, you know, little or no pay to do autographs and help you bring a foot traffic in the door. And that started to shift where it was all about how much can you pay me to be at your event? Um, and, you know, often we, we just simply couldn't afford yeah. to bring some of the, the high level celebrities in and, and, and that, that did rub me the wrong way, quite honestly, because in many cases, you know, the, the, the very reason that they are successful on TV, harvesting these large deer, uh, having this success, the financial success that they, they have is because of the hard work of groups just like ours who have made, made the, the management philosophy, uh, you know, the brought in the science of habitat management, food plots, trail camera surveys, all the various tricks and tools that they're using every day to be successful. You know, we pioneered all that or much yeah. of it. Uh, so yeah, it was, it, 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 certainly did cause a rub, but I had to just try to keep, you know, my head, uh, on straight and realize that, you know, this is a business decision now, and we have to just work within that model because, you know, I can be frustrated by it, but at the same time, it is what it is, uh, right or wrong. And, uh, we had to work within it. That, <laughs> I like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold my tongue right now. And because it, it is, it is frustrating for me. I'm just imagining what, what someone Let's say, for example, Lindsey Thomas Jr. Mm-hmm. He uh, he reached out to me a while ago. He's like, Dan, um, I, I'd like you know, I, I want to see if you can do something for me and be on this uh, this uh, uh, conference call at that Southeast Deer Management uh, conference. And I I said absolutely, you know, yeah, I'll be on it. I'll I'll do whatever you know, whatever I can do to help. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, what would I what kind of person would I be at that point if I said back to Lindsay, how much are you going to pay me to do that? Mm-hmm. I would yep. just feel like honestly a scumbag. And so I, it just gives me the jitters that there's an animal out there or animals and there's this, this, uh, whether you call it a sport or a hobby or whatever you call deer hunting, this thing that I love, I mean, it's touched my life in so many ways. Um, this animal that I love and I love to hunt and, and just not turning it into a dollar amount instead of the actual passion, because I'm sure these people had the 
had some kind of passion when they were younger about it, right? And it didn't it wasn't always about business. And so the the disconnect there is really what drives me bananas, man. Yeah, no no doubt. It's it's certainly frustrating. The most frustrating ones for me personally were those that in many cases got aligned with us in the early days or mid days of QDMA days in the 90s, 2000s and we actually helped build their brands. I mean, they were speakers, writers, uh, trained at our courses. You know, we elevated their their platforms and their brands to the point that they they were well known quantities. Yeah. Uh, and and then all of a sudden they turned around and said, "No, we're not going to come to your convention unless you pay me enough, uh, or we won't do this this that or the other unless you pay X, Y, or Z." And you know, that's the that's a big rub when when you know yeah. that in your heart that you really that many of them wouldn't have the platforms that they do without all the the affiliation they had with, with our organization and, and others. I'm not, I'm just using mine as my, my old organization as, as an example here, but you know, I've shared these conversations with other CEOs of nonprofits throughout the, the nation yeah. and it's the same story. Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, it's, it's uh, and there are a few exceptions. There's always the, you know, I, I want to, I don't want to put all these folks in the same basket because there are a handful of individuals who, absolutely continue to give and have always given and never asked for payment, rarely even sometimes don't even get gas mileage reimbursement for driving and speaking on your behalf. So there are exceptions to this, yeah. but unfortunately they are less common than they used to be. Um, And that's disappointing, certainly. Yeah. So you mentioned that you guys had to change how you operated a little bit in that space as that, type of uh that type of behavior changed what type of uh what did you do to counteract that type of movement where it was a uh, an influencer or a celebrity not you know wanting pay and not wanting to be a part of it unless there was some kind of uh monetary reimbursement or uh, maybe like a company like a well-known company saying hey man we're just we're not we're not interested anymore well, what was what was interesting was the you know, you know, we're, whether you're in the nonprofit space or not, you know, you're always selling something, right? So you're selling an affiliation, an alignment with with our organization. In my case, at QDMA, and you know, like I said in the early days, they wanted to hear a lot about the mission and what we were doing on the ground, and and that interest started to wane. And I guess maybe maybe they knew it. Maybe maybe that's the reason they didn't ask those same questions. Maybe they started to see what we were doing and didn't have to to have the, you know, the sales pitch on the mission and, and what we we're doing on the ground. And so it much more became a, again, a business transaction. How many members do you have? What's your growth? How many bankers do you have? How many are you reaching through your website? How many are you reaching through these seminars? You know, it was all, again, just metric driven, just like they were talking to, you know, Outdoor Life magazine. Yeah. Uh, no disrespect to them, but I mean, it's, it's, it was a, we had to become more sophisticated and more aligned with a traditional media sales pitch versus a mission conservation organization, mission driven sales pitch. Um, and so that was the, the fundamental shift there. And, and, and we also just had to start trying to figure out a budget, you know, when we held events and needed a celebrity influencer, we just had to budget that in. And unfortunately at some level that raises the cost uh, to the member to attend the event or yeah. whatever, you know, so, you know, there is a, you pass that along. I mean, nonprofits, you know, have to balance their, their math every month, like any other business. And you've got to just build that into your, your financial models. Was it worth it? I mean, did it, when, when you had to pay uh, someone to come to your event 
and do an autograph signing or just be there and speak, did it actually help that event? I would say yes, when we were very strategically focused on who we were bringing in and what their purpose was. You know, if you're having a trade show component and you need foot traffic, then some of the the A-list names that we all know definitely can help you there. Uh, if, if you're bringing in somebody just to speak to your core audience of, a, you know, several hundred dear managers, you know, a celebrity may not have the same uh, appeal to them uh, as, as a scientist type, a PhD or, a, you know, some well-known consultant. Uh, so, you know, it just it just depended. But we were it certainly made us very selective on who we invited and what we could justify financially. Yeah. Yeah. We were less inclusive. And I would, and, and what I would have hoped is that we would have been inundated with voluntary requests from all these celebrities saying we'd love to be at your event because of what you do for the whitetail. Right. You know, I'd love, I'd, I'd love to have trouble finding rooms for them all at the hotel. Uh, we never had that problem. Yeah, yeah. So that was the that's kind of like the the celebrity side of things or the the influencer or the um, figureheads in the industry in the industry part of it. What about the companies? Right. Because I've I've talked to some founders of some orgs, some, uh, you know, some uh, executives in some organizations, and they've tried to reach out. You know, they're reaching out to some of these multi-million dollar companies in the hunting industry, whether that's a manufacturer or whatever. Um, and the resistance there, it seems like, uh, has also grown to donate to conservation orgs. Yeah, and I think there's a, a number of reasons why. Um, certainly, we've seen a a consolidation of companies within the hunting industry over the last decade. We're seeing large uh, buying groups buy up and consolidate a lot of brands. So there's look for efficiencies of scale. And so there's less companies individually that, that can support an, a conservation organization. You have to kind of go through the parent company, the holding company, if you will. Um, there's been a, sh a big shift on just profitability to the nth degree. And the larger those conglomerates get, the more it's about the profits and less it's about the mission, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been a big shift. Um, you know, we, we've seen, uh, you know, I, I would say a, uh, uh, a, a drift in leadership. Uh, I don't see as many folks that are uh, running these these major brands that are as, as conservation focused as perhaps those a decade or two ago. Um, that's just a personal observation. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, it's it's a new landscape out there. And I would say that uh, now more than ever, uh, I would say that we're at just as critical a point now post COVID almost all the nonprofits are beat up terribly. Uh, there's a few exceptions to that, but most of them have really taken it on the chin, you know, not having in-person events, you know, is, is a huge a challenge for an organization that uh, relies on banquets and other types of functions to bring in members and income. And so uh, we're seeing the nonprofits struggling mightily. So if they need help uh, now, they do need help now more than probably the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So how often does this occur? You know, like over the years, I take it that if you were talking with a business or a individual, you were talking to someone who is a participant of hunting, right? They, they hunted. 
as I as we get into this new era of like what you were mentioning, larger companies buying up smaller companies, we have a, a marketing person, let's say that has they're not participants in in any type of hunting. How difficult is to is that to um, spread your message to those individuals who they're not in it? Oh, that's particularly hard. And that's unfortunately where the, the this discussion of just metrics, I mean, they're, they're most of them are classically trained media people, marketing people that look at, you know, click through rates and, you know, exposures and pass along rates and magazines. I mean, they have all these different ways they, they look at a particular audience, in our case, an organization. And so there is almost zero feeling for the mission or the, the cause or how it fits into hunting. It's simply a media buy for them. And uh, that's a, that's a difficult conversation, particularly if they don't come from our world, and don't understand our world and just how important it is to be aligned with, you know, the, the key conservation organizations that are doing the heavy lifting. And they have no perspective of global significance here. And, and a lot of hunters in our country don't appreciate the fact that, you know, North America is the only uh, big chunk of land in this world that has the number of conservation groups dumping in millions and hundreds of millions of dollars into habitat work and right. and conservation. This is a uniquely North American model. In fact, it's called the North American model of, of wildlife conservation, and it's considered the gold standard of the world. Uh, and so hunters, we've had it too easy too long. I mean, hunters have grown up in the last 30 years, at least with abundant wildlife in every nook and cranny. Uh, you know, very low hunting license costs. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, I mean, most states you can deer hunt for, you know, 50 bucks or less, at least for your license. And, you know, we have millions of acres of public land, some of which is pretty good. Um, certainly access to private land, if you're fortunate enough from a whitetail perspective, uh, that's even better. But we still have it very, very good. In fact, the best in the world. There's yeah. no other developed country in the world that gets to do what we do for the kind of expense that we that we have to pay. Yeah, yeah, that's a fact. All right. So, you know, I don't want to make this conversation sound so bleak, but as you know, coming out of that, um, you know, towards the end of, of your time at QDMA, did you see any, did it, was it getting better or was it getting worse as far as the, the industry part of it? I would say it was, you know, in my opinion, it had just kind of stagnated, uh, over the last say 10 years. Um, not, not measurably, better or worse. I hope that, you know, in the last two years, since I, I have been out of that part of the world for two years, you know, during this, this COVID world sort of situation that we're in, I would hope, and I can't speak for them because I'm not in it. Uh, I would hope that it has gotten better once again, that once they yeah. start to see the, the struggles and challenges these groups are having, I would hope that they would say, all right, I have been sitting on the sidelines a little too long here. It's time to get behind these groups because they need us and, and we need them. And that's yeah. what they have to look at is that, without these groups out there doing all the work, this whole concept of R3, uh, you know, who's doing it? You know, the agencies are doing some, but certainly the, the NGOs, the nonprofits are, are leading that charge in, in many areas. So if they want a sustainable business model, they have to support these groups, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the truth, man. That's the truth. Okay, so, you know, that's the, you know, your time at the QDMA, you were the person asking for money from people, whether that was getting, you know, trying to grow membership or trying to get donations or fundraising from other companies, other organizations, individuals, whatever. Now you step away from QDMA or, or you're, you're no longer with QDMA. And now you are, uh, what's your, what's your exact title with HuntStand? 
Well, the exact title is, is VP of Corporate Relations and Strategic Partnerships. Uh, that's my main function there. But I, so my secondary role there is as staff biologist and sort of conservation director okay. uh, for, for, the, for the group. But uh, most of what I do, uh, as the title, the first title would suggest, is I work with our partners. And our partners that I'm specifically responsible for are the conservation partners. Uh, the, 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 the NGOs out there that uh, most folks have heard of, the National Wild Turkey Federation is a partner of ours, Delta Waterfowl, Sportsman's Alliance, Archery Trade Association, those kinds of groups that are doing the good work on behalf of hunters. So that's one group of, of uh, clients that I work with on our behalf. The second would be the timber industry. Um, many folks know that the timber companies own and lease tens of millions of acres of land. And so they're a huge audience for us. And, and the third bucket is the state and federal agencies. And we do have a number of state agency partners uh, where their staff and biologists and law enforcement sections use our app uh, as part of their daily operations because it's better technology than what they have access to themselves. So that's the main groups that I work with. And then, as I said, I have a secondary role as staff biologist uh, working, providing biological content, uh, you know, both video, print, uh, that type of thing so that we have some good, reliable deer content, largely to uh, to share with our, our uh, subscribers and, and customers. Okay. So now you're on the other side of the table, okay? And there's probably people reaching out to Hunt Stand all the time saying, hey, can you donate to this cause or donate to this cause? What does that look like? What's that conversation look like now that you've that you've been with a conservation organization all those years? Well, I want to maybe back up just a little bit and say that when I when I left QDMA, you know, I was in my early 50s and not fully done, uh, but but also not looking for, you know, to, the kind of responsibility to run a big organization like I had for 25 years before that. So I was yeah. looking for something that fit my stage of life, uh, but also my philosophy. Uh, I wanted to work with uh, somebody uh, or a company that I believed in. Uh, that still allowed me to connect with deer hunters and landowners and, and hopefully provide some value to that audience because that is the audience that I've served my entire life. I know nothing else but working in the whitetail space, and I want to know nothing else but that. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when I started fielding calls, and I, I was fortunate enough to get quite a number of calls of, you know, what do you want to do next? And when I fielded the call from Lanford Holloway, Hunt Stand CEO, who I'd known and worked with uh, since before he even started the company. So I had a longstanding uh, personal relationship with him and a business one. And I first and foremost believed in him as an individual, uh, honest, decent human being, uh, but also importantly, his focus on conservation. He truly, he is a hunter. Uh, he developed the app out of a, a love of hunting and understands the, the long game here yeah. in terms of, you know, the industry. So that attracted me to, to, to hunt stand above any other offer that I had on the table. And so I jumped in with both feet and I was immediately encouraged by his encouragement for me to work with these conservation partners. And if necessary, give a little more than we expect to receive in return, which is a very rare conversation um, that I had the ability to go and offer these groups more support than we truly in many cases expected in return. Uh, it was an investment we believed in in the future of hunting. Uh, the second thing that we, we did, and I was fortunate enough to lead the company through uh, last year, uh, was a conservation visioning process for a, 
a for-profit app company. So it's a little bit of a unique play when, you know, you've got an industry company who wants to have a conservation vision for their company, uh, which was very refreshing and, and a fun exercise for me to take the group through. And we came up with four conservation pillars that we focus everything around. Uh, again, pretty unique perspective, I think, for a for an industry company. And, you know, they the, the four pillars are providing the best tools, access, and information we can to hunters. Uh, obviously, that's what our app does. Uh, but the second is partnerships, uh, working with groups to help them amplify their voice and their leverage. Uh, we have a huge audience, uh, 2 million users. So we, you know, we have one of the largest reaches in the hunting industry. So we can help these conservation groups do what they do already better. Right. Um, that's what we try to do there financially and in-kind support, you know, land access, you know, access is a huge barrier for, for hunters. And, you know, through our app, uh, we have opened up, you know, all kinds of, of information and available availability to public land and other areas that they had no idea of, uh, state wildlife management areas, uh, public lands, other federal lands and backdoor areas that you couldn't have, just couldn't have easily found without having a, a tool like ours. And so access is one of our big, uh, big pillars. And then the last is this future, this whole concept of future uh, of our industry. And, and so we support uh, groups that have proven track records in the R3 space. Um, those that have demonstrated success, because there's some that haven't, there are hundreds of R3 programs out there and that's recruitment, retention, reactivation of hunters, uh, trying to make and keep more hunters. Um, some of them have spun their wheels and others have been a little more successful. So, uh, those are our four pillars, and, and we literally try to to base our decisions as a company around those pillars. Yeah, and in it sounds like, and this is crazy to hear, but it sounds like somebody within HuntStand, and we're, we're using HuntStand as an example here for because uh, there could be other companies that are this invested, but I think they get it right. They get that. You know, hey, we can be profitable and we can do our thing, but at the same time, we can also give back in several ways and, you know, recruit, let's just say recruit new hunters. And, you know, it's not, I mean, let's not kid ourselves, those new hunters, when they're uh, exposed to information or an organization that Hunt Stand is, is supporting, those are potential customers too. So you oh, can absolutely, yeah, you can do good things and still be business savvy. Well, and we, we, in fact, think this is, is core to our business growth. Yeah. Uh, this is an investment in, in our company's future while investing in conservation. We think this is not an either or situation. We think this is a mutually beneficial relationship. Right. If we, you know, if we partner with said nonprofit, and they support us and we support them and we help them do what they do better. They're going to be loyal to, to us. And we see that as a key differentiator between hunt stand and our major competitors, because we clearly, in, you know, have taken, I think the, the boldest steps in the conservation space. Uh, and, and, you know, we're proud of that. Yeah. Uh, so this is not simply just us, you know, having a white hat, you know, not expecting anything in return, the long-term play, is in our belief is that they will be loyal to us and our product and that they will see that we give. And if they're making a decision, you know, years from now, uh, or someone they meet in the street or at the hunt camp and say, Hey, you know, what, what app are you using? 
well, I know that hunt stand is really behind conservation. That may be the tipping point for them yeah. to give us a look over somebody else. So yeah. uh, this is a, a this is part of of a broader strategy that we believe in as first and foremost, the right thing to do, but secondly, good for our business long-term. Yeah. Man, that's a win walking the walk. And that's, that's what gets me fired up about like wanting to work with a company or wanting to use a company's products when they are as passionate about the natural resource as I am. Right. I mean, I, I, I love hunting. I love bow hunting. I love, I love deer. And when a company goes, you know what? We love that too, and here's how we're going to support that. That just makes my decision to use a specific brand a no-brainer. Yeah, well, I'm the same way. I'm, yeah. you know, obviously, I come from this world where you know fighting for for support is is so difficult, and I get it. When I find companies that that do give back, uh, I'm I'm loyal. I'm yeah. loyal to those companies because you know I don't mind spending an extra five, ten, twenty, fifty dollars on a product if I know that company is supporting what I hold dear, uh, yeah. to, to myself and my family and the future of this country. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So given, given everything we've kind of talked about, I mean, go like, what would your message be to the guys who are listening to this, the guys and gals who are listening to this, the average Joe out there, um, you know, we all have busy lives, man. You know, I got three kids. I run this business out of my house. Um, I know guys out there who are working 40 plus hours a week. And, and when it's time to deer hunt, they, they may only get, you know, four weekends a year to go deer hunting. And, and some guys, not even that, but what would your message be to the average Joes of the world about the importance of participating in conservation? Yeah, I would say absolutely. You know, find if you're an avid turkey hunter, you know, find your organization, NWTF or, you know, whoever fits your 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 mold as a duck hunter, a deer hunter, a turkey hunter, elk hunter. Support the conservation groups. Uh, look into their backgrounds. Make sure they're reputable. There's a group called Charity Navigator. You can go online to CharityNavigator.com and look at their profiles and see how they're rated. There's independent rating group uh, that tells you if they're a two-star, three-star, four-star. You can see how efficient they are as a conservation organization. Spend a few, you know, few minutes doing some homework on these groups. Uh, if you find it uh, a good fit for you, definitely, in most cases, you're looking at $35 a year to join them. That's the average cost. It's not a big cost. Go to their banquets, have a good time, spend a few dollars, uh, spend a few, you know, spend a little time when you're considering a product purchase. Look into those companies and where they stand on conservation. And if you find one that has a stronger lean than the other, and that's an equally good product for you, support them. Uh, so just be aware uh, be be aware that these are good groups out there doing good work on our behalf, and we wouldn't have what we have today without them. And don't take that for granted. We wouldn't have turkeys, you know, in every nook and cranny without NWTF. We wouldn't have the quality of deer without the the the, the National Deer Association, what used to be the QDMA. Uh, and the same with Rocky Mountain Elk and Delta Waterfowl, and just on and on. These groups are, you know, Sportsman's Alliance fighting for our rights in state capitals and national halls of Congress. You know, these are the groups doing the lifting, much of which goes unseen to the average hunter out there, but, but they are truly doing good work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And every little bit counts is what I, what I've seen. I mean, even if it's something, even if you're a hunter, right. And maybe the, your secondary passion is pollinators or butterflies or bees. Mm -hmm. There's an organization for that kind of 
that kind of stuff as well. So it doesn't, I mean, you can go out and you can find something that you're passionate about and there's going to be a conservation organization out there for it. Now, let me ask you this. And this is, this is something that I debate with internally. And I know that after speaking with lots of the listeners that uh, listen to this podcast and the Sportsman's Nation podcast as a whole, um, people, they don't, they, they, they're hesitant to donate to a very big national uh, conservation fund because they don't know where their money goes. But if they go down to their local, um, you know, county conservation board and they say, hey, what is this money going to be used for on a local level? They can probably uh, tell them exactly what that dollar is going to go to. So my question to you is, if I if if I have a um, if I have X number of dollars and I have to donate, I'm going to donate it somewhere. Where mm-hmm. do you feel the money would be better spent um, or maybe the pros and cons of each of local versus national level conservation? Well, again, the first thing I would do, and, and I do this personally, you know, when I consider my annual donations to conservation groups is is go on Charity Navigator again yeah. and look at how efficient they are. Because that this is a third party group that measures these nonprofits and ranks them and they get a score. And it's it's pretty telling, you know, how efficient they are. And you want at least a three, the top score is a four-star charity. So you want at least a three-star charity. You want to look at their efficiency. You can see the salaries of their top executives. You can see how much goes to administration, how much goes to mission. So the first thing I do is just make sure they're reputable and that they pass at least a three-star kind of charity test from an independent standpoint. Uh, then I consider, you know, what species I'm most passionate about and or, and or those that may need the most support now. Uh, and kind of let that guide me. If there are some local groups, I mean, many of these same organizations have local chapters uh, that are doing local work. Uh, you can always reach out to the local chapter leader and say, what projects do you have going? And, and if I had an extra $100, what would you use that for? They can be very specific with it. Uh, so the, the key is just to make a few phone calls, spend a little time on the web and, and just understand you know, what these groups are actually doing and what's important to you. Um, In many cases, some of the organizations have stuff that are very tangible to you right where you are. Um, Others, and I'll just kind of use some of the duck organizations, you know, much of their work is in places that you can't see. Uh, They're in the potholes or in Canada or whatever. Doesn't make it any less important. It just may be less visible to you. Um, and, And that's okay. You just have to understand whether you need to see, you know, a sign up, at, at the local wildlife management area, five miles from your house with that organization's name on it that you gave a hundred dollars to versus seeing a duck that you wouldn't have otherwise seen if, if some of these duck groups didn't protect those areas, you know, yeah. 2000 miles to our North. Um, so it's, it's finding what's important to you and then just understanding the, 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 the reputation of, of the group that you're supporting. Gotcha. gotcha. Uh, if in doubt, give though, if in doubt, you're probably going to give to something each year. Most of us give something to, you know, on an annual basis, whether it's a few dollars or several thousand, depending on your ability, you know, I'm going to give to conservation first and foremost, everything that I do giving wise with just, just a few exceptions in, in the medical world with family illnesses that I've experienced in the past that I support. But, you know, most of my, most of my spare dollars, which isn't that many uh, do go to conservation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, I could sit here 
uh, with your with your uh, tenure in conservation, I could sit here and, and talk to you all day about you know the ifs and ands and, and things about conservation and, and where you're at now and and uh, you know the history of of the QDMA and things like that. But uh, I really do appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and chat with us. Um, any last words that you would like to uh, about anything really uh, about that you'd like to give to our, our listeners? I think more than anything, just share the passion with somebody else. You know, if you're blessed with the same passion I grew up with as a young child dreaming about the outdoors, you know, we owe it to ourselves to at least replace ourselves as hunters. Yeah. Because hunter numbers are declining, have been for a long time. We got a little bump with COVID and some of the R3 stuff, but the long-term trajectory for our country is, is not particularly optimistic right now. We're at about 4% of Americans who hunt. Uh, everything we take and hold so so cherished could be gone. And uh, I did work in Australia, as I mentioned very early on, and actually was there during the big uh, gun fiasco of the late 90s when uh, I stood in line with many of my fellow uh, Aussies as they handed in their guns to the Australian government. Uh, they said it couldn't happen there, it did. So don't, don't take for granted what we have. Yeah. And the only way we will continue to have it is by continued participation, support, investment of time, uh, treasure, and talent and that's the three things we have to give if you don't have the, the treasure you know give your time if you can't do much time but you're very talented in a particular area give your talent if you can give it all three yeah uh, so that'd be my take home perfect perfect well brian man i really appreciate your time thanks for coming on and uh dropping some knowledge on us today hey, my pleasure anytime dan thank you and there you have it Another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Brian Murphy. Huge shout out to all of you. Please go leave a five-star review wherever you download. Would really appreciate it. And then what are we going to do? We're going to go out and we're going to start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, We'll we'll do a little turkey hunting this spring. We'll look for some mushrooms. We will uh, go fishing. You know, we'll go camping. We'll spend some time with a family. But in the back of my head, there's always this little fire that's lit. Sometimes the fire gets real big and sometimes it's kind of small, but it's always there. And I'm always thinking about what the next season is going to bring. I have to go buy some tags. I got to apply for some uh, tags and I'm going to do that as soon as I get off the the podcast with you guys or after this uh, recording. Be safe. Spend time with your loved ones. Man, just be as positive as you can possibly be in life because that's really what it what is important. And the positivity that you put out also gets absorbed by other people and it becomes this snowball effect of happiness and positivity. And uh, that's what the world needs right now. So uh, I know that kind of sounds like a little hippie-ish, but uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm a hippie. I don't know. Have a good day. Love you guys all. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.